Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and in this podcast, I bring in guest theologians, scholars, musicians, Christian leaders, and together we attempt to bridge faith and ministry praxis. Worship Theology is a podcast to fuel and nurture vital discussions on worship, music, and theology. So we're so glad that you've joined us as we think deeply about Christian worship. My guest is the Reverend Dr. Constance Cherry, who served for years as professor of worship and pastoral ministry at Indiana Wesleyan University. Constance has decades of experience in full-time local church ministry and is also a founding faculty member of the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies. The focus of our discussion today is her book, The Worship Architect. Well, it is yeah, such a joy and a delight to, to see you again. This is uh, Dr. Constance Cherry is my guest today. Constance, um, yeah. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Hi, great to see you, Dr. Pirigo. And I love seeing your face. I hear your voice every now and then when we chat by phone, but yeah. it's great to connect. Well, well, Constance, this this podcast is is kind of trying to bridge worship and theology, and 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 talk about how different different approaches in in worship um, impact the belief and the life of of congregations. And just so people can get to know you a little better, um, you've been a part of so many different worship services and gatherings all over the world and different traditions. What's What's one that's memorable to you? I know that's such a such a challenging <laughs> question, but what's 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 a time of worship that that comes quickly to your mind and and why? Well, Jeremy, you're right. I I could say fifty in, <laughs> instantly because worship is so uh, transformational in my life. It, it it is for everyone, but I I know that there are so many moments that the Spirit of God just impacted me, but I'm going to start with one when I was a child. And my home church was a small uh, church in Lansing, Michigan. And I loved music from the beginning when I, you know, as, as a kid. But when I was about eight years old, I had a moment I'll never forget. It was a Sunday evening service at our church. And I, a teenage teenager in our church. Her name was Sandy. She was yeah. two years older than me. So I'm going to say I might, well, I'm not sure about our ages. But anyway, I did not know how to read a hymn. And she was holding the hymnal. And I sang all the time, but I sang just the words because I knew the words. I did not know the format of a strophic hymn. Yeah. And so she figured out that I didn't know. And she, as we were singing, she simply took my hand and she told she took my pointer finger and as we were singing she literally lined my pointer finger down through the strophes on the on the page went up to the top for stanza 2 and did the <laughs> same thing and of course by then it was all over i knew exactly what to do but I, the reason that's important to me is a couple of reasons first of all i have a love for for all kinds of church music, but I have been uh, trained in hymnology in, in my master's program, where I studied with Hugh McElrath, which is a very noted hymnologist. So, I mean, I have a an appreciation for the uh, the knowledge of all that goes into hymns, but I like so many so many genres and use them. But the reason that's also very important to me is because that's an episode of. Uh, intergenerational worship. I mean, here's a teenager taking a, a, an upper elementary school kid and and 
And just being in worship together and catching it rather than sometimes we say, you know, is it taught or is it caught? Well, it's both. But I think when we have intergenerational worship, there's a greater chance of worship being caught, uh, especially, you know, through the through the ages. So that's one that always, always comes to mind. I love singing in the church. I always have. I always will. And I think intergenerational worship is uh, underrated. Yeah. Oh, I love I love that picture of like having kind of a worship mentor or a bridge. Like yeah. it wasn't probably something that a, a specific program in the church that, no. that someone did. She just did it naturally for you. And I'm yeah, as I think of young children or even people who are yeah coming from other faith traditions that join the church, we need those right. those bridges to help explain what what we're doing and also why we're doing what we're and, we're doing. And I I love that it's organic. It's not like, okay, now they have to learn this, but it it arises out of the worship itself and I love yeah. that. Well, you've been you've been a professor um yeah, at Indiana Wesleyan in in worship and also at Indi- Institute for Worship Studies and have taught kind of all over the world. I'm curious. I don't think I've ever asked this question to you, but what initially drew you to the study of of worship and theology? Well, I can tell you pretty much exactly how that happened. I grew up in the free church tradition and I had a let's see, a at the point that that I became acquainted with and desiring future studies, I had already had a bachelor's in music and a master's in music, and I had been serving in churches as uh, minister of music professionally. Yeah. But because I grew up in the free church tradition, Jeremy, honestly, I never was acquainted, I didn't even know there was a whole field of liturgical theology. I didn't know people studied worship. Uh, And once I found that out, the hunger in me just swept over me. But it took a little book, ironically written by two free church people. There's a little book called um, Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel, there's a couple books by that same title, but this was written by um, Ron Allen and Gordon Borer, and they're both free church people. But what the, I still have this book. It's highlighted. It's written in. I just they started talking about how worship was different than music, and that um, there was much, much more to this. Now, right now, I wouldn't. I recommend the book, but I wouldn't. It's not an academic book, but. And I wouldn't use it for my classes, but but it inspired in me this awesome window that just opened up. And so then from then on, I just started pursuing formal liturgical studies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so it's a beautiful thing how those those little seeds from, from other authors, other scholars, mm-hmm. pastors help open the doorway. I mean, I feel particularly your book, The Worship Architect, has done that for, <laughs> it really, I'll, 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 it'll, it'll sound like I'm exaggerating, but really a whole generation of, of worship leaders to begin to think more theologically about why we do what we do and mm-hmm. even how to maybe frame it in a way that's biblical foundations. It's a text I've used literally every program, undergrad or master's program I've taught at kind of, yeah, in different contexts. And I'd, I'd love to spend most of our time just jumping into some of the, the content around that, and maybe some of that will be application or particular questions. But in, in The Worship Architect, you you start this, this discussion of what it means to be a worship 
architect on biblical foundations. Um, you start it with scripture, which again, we'll get an amen from hopefully everyone in the global <laughs> church that scripture is is our source. But would you share, again, you kind of have six biblical foundations. Maybe we won't go into all those. I hope people will read the book, but can you share a, a little bit about some of those key biblical foundations for, for corporate worship? Sure. And it's important to note what you just said, Jeremy, that these are not mine. These are what come deduced from scriptures themselves. And it, I was simply trying to um, isolate a few that I thought were necessary from God's point of view. So the six that I presented, <coughs> I'm so sorry, excuse me. I'll say just like one sentence about each one. Sure. Uh, worship is centered in God's acts of salvation. This is something that uh, my mentor, Robert Weber, helped me to see that we don't have worship apart from understanding that God is a saving God. It's who God is. It's God's nature. And so we worship because God saves it, out of his very nature. Yeah. Another one, worship follows the pattern of revelation and response. This is very important to understand that God reveals God's self first and initiates worship. And then from that, we respond. It doesn't start the other way around. Uh, worship enacts a covenant relationship. This is fundamental to Christian worship, that we are in covenant with God and people, and that in itself shapes worship as family, as lovers, so to speak, of people who are pledged to each other, God to people, people to God. Worship is corporate in nature. That's a whole other discussion. I, I don't uh, I don't underestimate the power of personal individual worship, of course. But what we're talking about is the people of God gathered. And right now, that's a big discussion, especially with online services and so forth, what constitutes corporate worship. Uh, worship is Trinitarian. I think we have some people, especially in the free church, I would say evangelical contemporary mix, we have um, neglected the Trinitarian nature and either performed as modalists where we uh, separate the three persons of the Trinity and, and don't talk about them as one being, or um, many people are concerned, for instance, that we underestimate or neglect the work of the Holy Spirit in worship, so Trinitarian. And then lastly, worship is a journey of transformation. This is something very important, I think, for us to understand is that worship forms us or disforms us mm. is possible also. Mm. What, what about, as you look at kind of the modern contemporary church, you know, which of these maybe have been sometimes neglected. Um, you kind of alluded maybe to the, the Trinitarian that maybe some of mm -hmm. some churches have become Jesus only or have, again, modalists separating Father, Son, Spirit so, so much. Like, yeah. are there others that maybe you, you've seen there, there needs to be a, a corrective to come back to some of these biblical foundations? I, I do echo your, the concern for the Trinitarian uh, emphasis I would say one that I'm concerned about is that worship is corporate. Many, many services that I attend have a lot of people in the room, but I wouldn't call them corporate. So corporate does not mean that there are a that there is a group of people. 
Corporate means that you are engaged intentionally together in the offering of uh, the body of Christ to God, to the glory of God. And so that's going to have some implications. It's going to mean that um, the worship architect will engage them in acts of worship that require um, unison participation. I don't necessarily mean unison readings, but, you know, it's possible for people to even be in the same room singing the same song and it not be corporate. For instance, if the pronouns of the songs are I, there might be 300 people in the room, but we're only singing for ourselves at that moment. Or uh, they might not be corporate in the sense that people have actually uh, turned down the lights and closed their eyes and in so doing can't even see the co-participants in worship. So um, there's something to think about with all of that. And I, I think the other one, Jeremy, would be worship is transformational. Again, I I, I was a late bloomer on this. Um, so I'd say in the last 20 years, I became, I took some wonderful classes at Duquesne University in uh, related to uh, worship and spiritual formation. So I have become very aware that Worship will form us. That's going to happen. The question is, how will it form us? And so the worship architect carries a holy burden to ask that question, how are my people being formed as a result of uh, the worship that we do week after week? Mm. Yeah, it's so important. As, as, as you think of some of these things, maybe the, the corporate nature or the, the formative, transformative are there specific acts or expressions of worship? I love this about your your book that you, there's there is uh, it's it's liturgical theology, so it's mm-hmm. it's why we do, but it's also the how. Like how mm-hmm. how can we, as you think of of some of those foundations, like what's what's a specific act or expression that enables us to to embody this this one of these foundations? Yeah, well, in some styles, and and I value all styles, but some styles. Um, do this more or less differently or more fully. Example, a call to worship, which may or may not be present depending upon your style of worship. And I tell my students, the countdown clock is not the call to worship. Okay, so let's get that straight. Um, But a call to worship begins with revelation because it's not really us calling ourselves to worship. It's God calling us to worship. So just using a call to worship establishes the fact that God has called us, that we are coming in answer to God's call. Now, it does not have to be words uh, spoken. Certainly, there is an abundance of songs that serve as a call to worship, but what the worship architect has to do is to identify the song that's a call to worship and use that as a call to worship. And then, in a very economical manner, um, let the people know that we that God is calling us to worship as we sing. So there's some teaching that goes with that. Another example would be um, the passing of the peace. Now, the passing of the peace is not the greeting time where you turn around and greet your neighbor and say, hey, I, I found a new pizza place you might be interested <laughs> in. But actually speaking the peace of Jesus to those around us 
And you think about that corporate expression, how you're actually looking into faces, touching, um, speaking, is a very important horizontal piece to this. And again, there are songs that could be doing that um, easily. And, you know, I, I think about um, the offering. We have eliminated pretty much the collection of the offering. We started eliminating it because of the f trending philosophy that uh, we didn't want people to think that the church was after their money, so yeah. just dump it in at the back, back. But now, of course, due to COVID, it, it's pretty much non-existent. But actually, the offering is a response to God. And so it's an, a response act. And so I was at a church recently, which I really appreciated. They did not collect the offering, but they dedicated it. And when I was serving my small church, uh, what we did with COVID again is we had to have stations for safety where the money could go. But I still lifted it to the Lord. We still prayed over it. And so that's still a, a responsive act of worship. And so whatever we do to carry out this conversation with God, revelation response, it happens through acts of worship. And we just have to ask ourselves, which direction is it going? Is it to God, from God, to one another? And how how is this working um, from beginning to end? Yeah, I love that. I particularly, I think both you and a few other scholars and friends have helped me um, yeah, reshape my thinking and practice around the call to worship, like the opening words, first words. Yeah, and I think yeah for sure. It, it, in my free church tradition, it was, hey, welcome to church. Let's let's go for it. Let's <laughs> worship. And again, there's there's nothing wrong or heretical in that sense, but it does it does speak about who's the focus of worship in in those moments with those first words. <laughs> like like it, it, it puts it, the, what I just described there, which was probably the first 20 years of my life is let's go for it or let's worship, yeah. stand up and sing. Yeah. That really puts the, the beginning of worship on us as, as like we have to work up worship rather than this. I loved your picture of like, yeah, God calling us, the father mm -hmm. calling his children into, into the living room for, for a, a time of encounter, a time of, right. of meeting. And so I, that's one of the things I have students do. And in, in if they're reading your book, like think back to those first words you heard last Sunday and, and are they centered on God's redemptive story? And are they following the biblical pattern? Is it, is it highlighting covenant? Is it Trinitarian? And again, Sometimes you only have two sentences with the, the right. timing of the service and everything else happens. But even in that, like you, you can redirect um, mm -hmm. the the focus of of worship. Let me share a, a story with you. This would have been a few years ago. I'm going to say seven or eight years ago. I got a phone call from a guy that I never met. Um, I'll call him John. But he was uh, a minister of music, a pastor of music at a really large Reformed church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they had multiple campuses and so forth. He called me and he said, can I make an, a phone appointment with you and my, uh, lead, my worship leaders at each of the campuses? Now, it so happened that these were all, there were three, plus John, there were four, but uh, the other three were young men 
in their 20s who were worship pastors at one of these campuses. So we had our little meeting, and he said, the reason I want to meet is because I was looking for something to disciple them. I came across a worship architect. We've been studying and reading it chapter by chapter, and we have some questions. And so would you entertain a just a conversation, which I did, and I enjoyed it so much. Well, um, at the end of our conversation, I asked them what part that they weren't all the way through the book yet, but I said, up to what you have read so far, what one thing would you th say is the, the most valuable that you've thought about so far? And they were, they were quiet and reflective, and they all agreed. They said, it never occurred to us that, that God calls us to worship. It never occurred to us. So then I said, what will you do as a result? And as later on, Jonathan sent me, he had them reworking and writing out all of them, prayers of invocation, call to worship. Now, this is a highly contemporary con yeah. uh, setting. And they were editing them and creating them. And when I saw what they had produced, I have it. And I go back to that every now and then because it is a blessing. And they said, it transformed the call to worship alone transformed the whole tone of the service. So it's a neat story, and I think the possibilities are definitely there in acts of worship. Yeah. Oh, I, lo I love that. You you mentioned invocation, and I think this is this is an interesting one. Again, you, you know, I grew up in an Assemblies of God church, but then was going kindergarten through eighth grade in a Christian reform school. So I, I had a, yeah, and then if have served in Anglican traditions and church, Turkish Bible churches, and so <laughs> love love the global church and and but particularly you you yeah this this kind of theology of revelation and response that's deep within the Reformed tradition among among others do, is reminding us as, as you were just saying that God initiates worship yeah. God calls yeah. us into worship I'm I'm curious though where does then prayers songs of invocation fit into this kind of biblical foundation? Um, can can we say, or where where can we say, come Holy Spirit, or <laughs> God, we, we invite you? Um, if, if worship is initiated by God, um, where does that piece of us as, as God's people inviting him, um, yeah, where does that kind of land? Well, this is a question that's often asked. And of course, the word invocation is from the word invoke, invoking God's presence. And so there would, um, there would be this pushback a little bit to say, well, God is already here. God's presence is here. What are we doing calling on his presence to be here? And I look at it uh, very much this way, that at, well, first of all, I think it's also appropriate to just acknowledge God's presence rather than necessarily call upon God's yeah. presence. But I tell my students, I don't think it's wrong to say, come Holy Spirit, I'll come back to that in a second, <laughs> or come God and, and be among us, because it's, a, it's the same time, we're not saying we're snapping our fingers and now God is appearing before us, but it's one way of saying, we know you're here, we know you're among us, even though we're calling you uh, among us. I don't think they're antithetical. I think both 
both types of language works. Now, I do know some people that say, and I read uh, an author not too long ago who I do, who has a lot to offer uh, in his book, and I draw on it, but I disagree with him at a couple of points. And one is, he said that you should never um, pray to the Holy Spirit. And I disagree. If you say that the Holy Spirit of God is a person of the Trinity, a person of the Trinity, then the Spirit is addressed as a person and is conversed with as a person. The Spirit is not uh, an entity that performs certain things at God's bidding, but the Holy Spirit is a a person of the Trinity with whom we, we dialogue. And I have no qualms whatsoever and do pray, come Holy Spirit. Uh, In fact, early, early in the liturgies, this happens. And if you consider um, the Spirit of God to be a person and active in worship, then it it is perfectly fine to say, come Holy Spirit, your presence be among us. We we await what you will do. We expect your uh, participation as we glorify the triune God. Yeah, and I, I mean, as you mentioned, like, it makes me think to early Latin liturgies, Venice mm-hmm. Sanctus Spiritus, like, come Holy Spirit, is, has been a part of the prayers of the, the global church, yeah, for, for centuries. I, it also reminds me, as, as I think about some of your work, about emphasis on that covenantal relationship and where, where Israel, probably in the midst of exile or post-exile, again, depending on how you date Isaiah, but they, they look up to heaven and say, oh, that you'd rend the heavens and come down. And that wasn't just for them to have a, a spiritual, personal encounter with God. It was that God's covenantal promises didn't seem what, again, he initiated, he gave those covenantal promises, but, but what wasn't happening um, they weren't seeing those promises fulfilled. They were seeing the exact opposite. And so to look up to say, God, it doesn't look like you're doing what you said you're going to do as people in relationship, come down, visit us. And also reminds me of, of the words of Jesus and the prayer of, that Jesus taught us to pray, to, to pray to let his kingdom come and let his will be done. And that means there's probably situations, circumstances where we're not seeing heaven's activity. We're not seeing divine activity where there's brokenness in the city. And so I think particularly too, in the place of intercessory prayers or pastoral prayers to have those moments of, you know, there's someone that needs heal. There's, there's brokenness and there's racism and injustice. God, that's not, that's not, that's not you. (laughs) We want to see, we want to see you in, in this area. So Come, move, <laughs> reshape. Well, one thing to remember, too, is that the early church fathers, as they were defining the doctrines of the church that were summarized in the creeds, in the, in the Nicene Creed, it, uh, it clearly says uh, that um, on the line of the Holy Spirit, who is hymned, H-Y-M-N-E-D, with the Father and the Son. So... Singing to the Holy Spirit equally, calling on the Holy Spirit equally with Father and Son appears in the early creeds. I mean, it's their understanding of the role of the Spirit and that is not to be neglected. 
Yeah, and the Gloria Patri, like glory to the Father, to the Son, right. to the Spirit right. That's, right. that's been sung at the end of probably almost every psalm reading in monastic <laughs> communities for for centuries. Oh, I, yeah, I love, love, yeah, what what you're doing here is is helping, particularly those of us from the free church tradition or those those in denominations that have have been influenced by that tradition. You're helping us kind of reclaim some some biblical oh, yeah. foundations of worship that, um, yeah, maybe have been neglected. On on the flip side, you your your book Worship Architect provides just fantastic resources around designing worship, and particularly the the structure of worship. And I think again, your class at, at IWS was one of those that really helped me rethink. Um, why it's important not just to think about the content, our words of worship and the style of music and contextualization, but but about why we 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 structure the service in this way. Why why do you think for you that's yeah, or for the church that's that's important to really think through the structure? I think, Jeremy, it can be said in one sentence, and that is that the medium is the message. The order of service is not neutral. It is not um, something that can be fabricated based on our whims or desires for the day. But if the medium is the message, which I believe it is, in other words, the delivery system of the story of God, of the people of God at worship, the delivery system itself tells the story. Now, people, I think it would be very valuable if worship leaders and pastors unwrapped that But it's not like everybody in the pew has to understand the nuance of that at every moment. In fact, I think that's probably not necessary. But as you disciple your leaders, the order itself, the shape, which I talk about a historic shape of gathering word, response to the word, table and response, and sending, you know, that motion is the gospel. And so in a, I claim the gospel in the very way I, I order the worship elements. And by that, I mean, and here again, Dr. Weber was very influential in helping me see this, but the gospel is that God gathers us, that we were lost and God comes to us, came to us when I was apart from God God found me gathering. Then God made it possible for me to hear the story of his redemptive work. Someone told me the story. If that was in a Sunday school class or my parents or at church or in a vacation Bible school or wherever that was, somebody told me what Jesus did for me. I was not converted until I said yes to the story, which is the response to the word, the table, the surrendering moment. And then one of the, I think, one, for many years, one of the um, shortcomings of my tradition in the free church was that getting saved was the point and service was highly neglected. But the gospel always ends with go. That was Jesus' final words to his 11 disciples in the end of Luke, the end of Matthew. Go and do particular things as you baptize, tell a story, serve the poor, fill in the blank. And so if every Sunday there's this undercurrent of 
movement that takes me from, takes the people from, God has called me, God has a word for the day, I must decide what that word for the day means to me in light of God's spirit, and then there will be something to do. And that happening over and over is the medium, is the message. And so I think the structure carries the very message itself. And that's why I think it's so important. When, yeah, particularly, I I was thinking last night, I was teaching an online class, master's level class, and most of those students in the class are from non-liturgical tradition. So they are from what you're what you're you've been saying, the free church tradition, mm-hmm. Church of God in Christ and yeah. kind of non-denominational and some yeah. some Baptists were in there. When they when they read that and when they hear that, they they uh, stretched might be the nicest word. They they push back a little bit like, "Well, we're we're not a we're not we don't have a worship structure. We're not a liturgical church. We're not a you know, we're not Catholic or we're not uh, Anglican." And and I I I I I want to want to just throw that out there to you. Like, is there such a thing as a non-liturgical church or a church that doesn't have a liturgy? No, there's not such a thing as a non-liturgical church. That does not exist. Every single church has its liturgy. You're just there may not call it with the big L word, but it is what <laughs> at liturgy, of course, is whatever actions we take to accomplish worship. So um, I will have Pentecostal people say occasionally to me. Um, well, we we don't have a liturgy. We just let the Holy Spirit take over, and we do whatever the Spirit tells us to do. Remarkably, that service is similar week to week to week to week. <laughs> yeah, and so either the Holy Spirit is in a rut, or or they are. But we have to understand that everything we do in worship forms our liturgy. So I just want to say, every church has a liturgy. The question will never be, are you liturgical or not? That's not the question. You are. The question will be, does the liturgy represent God's expectations of what should happen in worship? That's That's it. No, that's so good. This has been an area that I've been researching and studying on is, you know, those liturgies of the free church tradition and to help them as, as an insider, kind of in a, in a, in a kind way, help them see like, yeah, you have things that happen every, every Sunday, every time you gather at the same time in the same place, that's a ritual that is. And again, their, their, their language or their nomenclature is anti-liturgical or anti-ritual, but that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have those, those rhythms. Um, Everyone does. Yeah. You, you frame kind of all of this worship plan, planning under the title of encountering God. And this may be help resonate with those in, that tradi- in those traditions we were just trying to expose some of the, the things happening. How does, yeah, how does planning worship as an encounter with, with the living God shape what we do? And I think you're, you're highlighting this a little bit in what, what you call the fourfold order, fourfold mm-hmm. rooms. But how does shaping, um, yeah... Uh, our worship planning under this idea of encounter with the living God, um, yeah, impact our worship. Well, as I read the scriptures, when there are theophanies, when God appears to people, either the children of Israel altogether or individually, uh, I don't see moments where God just thunders something and then that's that. It, It doesn't end. There are Something happens, God is encountered, 
people respond in some way. So um, we are the only religion that has a personal God that engages in conversation with us. And so if worship is, Jeremy, fundamentally worship is a conversation, period. So you've got God as one part of the conversation, and you got people. And they are held together in a conversation that God starts. So I think worship architects have to say, when we plan worship for our church, encountering God depends on us forming a conversation so that God can be heard as God speaks. God always speaks, but that God, we, God can be heard and we can partner with our people in speaking back to God. So I think what we've been guilty of, I've been guilty of, is planning worship as a program. And so we say, okay, we want to start with this, and then we like this song, and oh, they'll love this if we do this here. And, and so we're fashioning a program. It's very, very different than just say, we've got a God who's going to meet with us. That's a promise. How can we um, start the conversation? How can we carry that through? So I think encountering depends on the dialogical nature of worship. Because yeah. I, I think it's possible to not have a sense of the manifest presence of God if we, pro if we just program it. But if we're preparing and acknowledging all along the way that God is with us and God is speaking and God is hearing, then we've got a better ch uh, chance at encounter, I think. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of the encounter. I mean, we all know uh, that many worship leaders, again, including myself, we know how to pull, pull the triggers on emotion. We know how to design worship to, to get a buzz. We can do that. But that's manufactured worship, and it depends upon us when that happens. But encountering, it cannot, worship such as that cannot um, promise the encounter with God. But if this service is given to the Holy Spirit, the whole, it's the Holy Spirit's job to enable the encounter. I often tell my young worship leaders, he must increase, I must decrease. Um, a good worship, worship leader will, will be unseen, will be there only to the degree that the facilitation is happening for the conversation. But encountering God can't be manipulated. It, it can't be promised by us. can be promised through the Holy Spirit, but not, not through the worship leader. Yeah. It, it, as you share this, it, it reminds me of a term you use both in the worship architect and your teaching, particularly for musicians, as being pastoral Musicians, Can you maybe unpack that for those that aren't familiar with your work or aren't familiar with that term? What does it mean to be a, a pastoral musician? Well, I was unfamiliar with the term until I was working on my doctorate. And actually, it was um, my teacher at that class, John Vliet, who introduced me <laughs> to that term. And the term itself has a long history, but it doesn't have a long history again in the free church tradition. And basically... Um, a pastoral musician is someone who understands that their, their role is 
musician, but that their ministry is pastoral. So pastoral is an adjective to musician. Um, you can be, we all know of church, many churches that have hired uh, non-Christians to do worship music, okay? And so music then is understood to be the, uh, the important piece that anybody can do. But pastoral musician presumes that really only Christians should be directing the, the worship life of the church. And it, I'm not talking about a credential, like I'm not talking about a pastor or ordination or certified or any of that. Talking about the person who is a musician who is in love with God, in love with the church, understands that this is a ministry, not a performance kind of, of thing. I like, um, love the, the writings of Nicholas Wolterstorff, and I know you're familiar with him. But in one of, in, I quote him in The Music Architect, and he says that um, all music is functional. Like there's, when, when I did classical music studies, um, we we talked about music that was that had no function that was just music for music's sake and we talked about how composers would create music because they were artists without a function for that piece nicholas Wolterstorff defies that. He says, even in classical music, I mean, there's a function. You're going to the opera to hear an opera, and you're paying money for a ticket for entertainment or for pleasure or for inspiration. And so he said that all music is functional. There's no such thing as music for music's sake in worship. And so the pastoral musician gets that and has to start to say, um, let me help the church identify the function. I need to identify the function of each musical piece so I can know how it's functioning in the liturgy. Yeah. Mm, good quote. Yeah. Constance, one of my, my students that's been working with, with your, your book, um, yes, actually a couple of them submitted some, some questions. They knew I was going to be talking to you. And one of them kind of on this idea of pastoral musician was, was wrestling with, with a couple thoughts. He was asking, what, do you, what would you say, Dr. Cherry, to <laughs> someone who's maybe gone off the path to seek the title of worship leader? He even used bishop of worship, like the highest level of, of worship leader. And, and, and their life has become more about a title than a sacred, holy role. And that, yeah, that they're, they're seeking, you know, notoriety or, or something to put on a business card or website <laughs> rather than a pastoral calling. What might you encourage someone who's maybe, yeah, reshaped their values towards, um, yeah, beyond serving the church? Well, I think that I would encourage them, first of all, to explore that uh, phrase, pastoral musician, to understand that um, music ministry or worship ministry, it is a calling. And the calling means surrender. And so if you are doing music, and there are lots of, lots of musicians that are doing music that aren't don't see it as their calling, but they sure love it. It's so much fun, and they have a place to do it. 
um, they need to explore the idea of surrendering their vocation to God's purposes. Again, back to I must decrease, he must increase. Um, I think that checking our motives is always a really good thing to do. And getting a spiritual director that can just help us all, myself included, keep things straight. Like, um, I'm not doing this because strictly, or first of all, because I enjoy it or I'm good at it or they want me or they need me. But I'm doing this because prayerfully God has invited me into this role and I surrender my own ego to, to God's purposes to serve. Pastoral musicianship is always about service. It's about serving God, but serving the people and helping identify what they need, not what I want to do. Another, another Dort worship arts student asked this question, how can young pastoral musicians lead the charge in developing a congregation's worship voice without coming across as disrespectful for the tradition? So it's, I think it comes from an interesting idea where maybe the church is, is a free church tradition, I think, in this case, mm-hmm. but they have a rich tradition in that, in that tradition of the way mm-hmm. they've done worship for 40 years or 100 years or 150 mm-hmm. years. How can, um, yeah, someone that's, that's growing in their, their knowledge of, of, okay, some things are wrong here, but mm-hmm. I don't want to disrespect that tradition. What, what advice might you have for, for that student? Two things come to mind, Jeremy. One is... Uh, you got to take it slow. And I would take one thing that I would like to improve upon. Let's say the call to worship as, as a perfect example. And over time, shape it gently and consistently. I think consistency is the most important thing to change your, to change your language, to change the posture of the service. And, and I don't think you have to do it radically. I think it can be done gently and carefully uh, over time. That's so going slow and being consistent. But, this, but what I've learned uh, over time is that, honestly, change and leadership is all about relationships. And in my opinion, after 45 years of doing this in the church, if you do not approach your people with love. And, and not just that you love them, but you know them. You know and love your people, which takes a lot of time, a whole lot of time. And the relationship is the most important thing to change so that they know you, they love you. You know them, you love them. You're spending time with them. You're in their homes. You're praying for and with them. You can get a lot, of, and I don't mean this in a manipulative way, but they will give you lots of leash if you have a relationship because they're going to trust you. That, tr- that area of trust when you know each other, when you know they've oh, yeah. got your back, they're not trying right, to right. manipulate you or they're really looking yeah. for your best interest or the community's mm-hmm. best interest. I'm, I'm sure there's lots of areas for growth, and we've even pointed out some of those as we looked at your biblical, fa- you know, the biblical foundations that you kind of helped helped us understand. But as you look at also at this kind of new emerging generation of of pastoral musicians and worship leaders, 
What do you see maybe as, as some of the strengths of what's what's happening, those that you've been teaching at IWS or IWU or, or mm-hmm. other places? Well, I do love the age group of young, young adults. Uh, I'm very grateful that God, for a while I taught seminary, which was a, a slightly older classroom, but um, I love the 18 to 22, 25, 20-year-old, 20-year-olds, and one of the reasons I love them so much is they're honest, Uh, and I think that's a a benefit. I think they're honest, but I see in the next generation of worship leaders, I see an eagerness to know God. I I see a generation that's passionate and hungry to truly experience and know God, and um, I also have seen in my students, they're done with the entertainment thing. They're done with the show. Um, they don't, they're not interested in, um, now it might not look like this, but they're not so interested in the stage show as they are in helping people with authentic and biblical worship. I can remember, I got, I, we had this discussion lots, but I can remember one in particular. One day I was nearing the end of a lesson at Indiana Wesleyan, and uh, I could tell this was an upper-level worship class, and they were really thinking. You can see that in there. In the, they were thinking, but they weren't rejecting. They were buying it, but they were, like, thinking hard. And so I paused, and one of my students said, Dr. Cherry, you know we agree with what we're learning, and, and, and in fact— we think it's the way forward for the church. We've got buy-in. But you know, don't you, that we're never going to get to do this. And I knew what he meant, but I said, what do you mean? He said, we're going to get hired at a church that has a 50-year-old pastor who says to us, you get up there and play the guitar when I drop my quarter in, and then I'll get up and preach. And I said, I think you're right. That will happen now. But two things you have to remember. There will come a day if you are faithful to your, uh, your education and your growth in Christ, there will come a day when you will be the leader. It'll be a long day coming, but it will happen. And then you will be ready to take leadership and do it in the way that you believe is God-honoring. But the second thing to remember is we did not get here overnight. This is a, a slow boat, and turning the boat around will take time, but that's what we're all committing to, and it will happen um, by God's grace. And so in the young people today, I just love them. I think they're ready I think they're eager, and I think they're serious about the church and about God. So good. My, mm-hmm. my last question for you, Constance, is, is, is a little silly, but it comes again from one of our students, and I've asked this to a few other guests. Do you remember Back to the Future, the movie, the DeLorean, and Marty McFly, that sort of thing? Yeah. If, if you could jump back you know, to the future, get in that DeLorean, and go back to the time you were just getting started in in worship ministry or pastoral ministry, 
what what might you tell yourself? What might you tell your you know the the twenty year old Constance Cherry or <laughs> or the the twenty five year old or what what might you encourage yourself or challenge yourself at that at that point in your life? That is a great question um, that I have to think about. But I think I think it's a challenge to understand. Well, I I would say that God's church is huge. And my view as a 20-year-old Constance Sherry had a very narrow view of the church. I even suspected that certain mainline congregations couldn't be possibly be quite as Christian. I, I never thought they weren't Christian, but, you know, not, not the real deal. And... And over time, I have learned, and this is such a blessing, God's people are everywhere. Because I went on to serve as full-time minister of music at mainline congregations. And to my joy and dismay, but utter joy, found such deep people of God, of faith, of prayer. And I thought, you know, it's a corrective that I, I wish you can't have except through experience. And then, Jeremy, that has only exploded as I've traveled around the world because every time I go to minister in another nation, I'm sure this has been true for you, I land and I, I minister with and to and around uh, very devout people of faith, especially in Asia, that's where I've been the most, but in Europe and other Caribbean, other places. I stand there and think, God's people are everywhere. They're everywhere. And my little, my little world was so small. And I would challenge any opportunity you have as a young leader to expose yourself to the reality that God's church, the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. And people that are far beyond me in spiritual maturity are to be found. And uh, I praise God for that. Yeah, hearty amen from me too. <laughs> Constance, you're, yeah, it's it's such a joy to be able to share. Thank you for your both yeah, personal relationship with, with me and teaching and training and my wife, Angela, but also you're a gift to the, the body of Christ in, in your work and in your ministry. So thanks Thank for joining you, us today. This has been, been fun and I appreciate you too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening today and a special thanks to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for their support of this podcast.